to episode 41 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. Ruth Chatterton may not have the name recognition of Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, or Irene Dunn, but her body of work should be better known. She was a huge star on Broadway and then later on screen during the pre-code era in Hollywood. Critical accolades were tossed at her feet like a bouquet of long-stemmed roses when she was only a teenager. She once received a standing ovation when she entered the stage before she delivered a single line just because she looked so much like the character she was supposed to play. By the time she decided to leave the stage and act for the screen in Hollywood in 1928, she was 36 years old and had been acting for most of her life ever since she was 14. While the moguls reached for a bromide during the high-stakes transition to sound, they also used the new technology as an excuse to break lucrative contracts with stars from the silent era. Ruth Chatterton brought her plummy, stage-cultivated voice to ease the indigestion of Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky in Paramount Studios before settling with the brothers Warner. She played society dames in pictures such as The Rich Are Always With Us, Female, and Doddsworth, but she often played women of limited means struggling to gain purchase in a world with the odds stacked against them, such as Frisco Jenny and Lily Turner. After her film roles disappeared, she had a second career as a best-selling novelist in the 1950s. She was well-read, accomplished, and also a keen aviator. Anybody's Woman from 1930 isn't as bawdy as the better-known picture Female from 1933, but it has much to recommend it. Ruth Chatterton abandons the upper-crust stage enunciation that carried her over into the stage career from the fil- to the films. Instead, here she grinds hard consonants and clips off word endings in a lower octave that leans towards a gravel finish rather than powdered voice. Physically, she lets her limbs bend and stray away out of the country club pose, which keeps her limbs pulled into the body. When we first see her, she has one leg slung over an armchair. When she's among society, her elbows often poke out in a defensive or awkward manner. Viewers can see her correct her body and adjust her body to a posture in scenes when she's mindful of the class norms that restrict behavior for women. In many ways, this picture lays the foundation for one of the most popular themes in pre-code women's pictures, the working-class woman with a scandalous reputation who marries a wealthy man. Ruth Chatterton plays a quarry named Pansy Gray, who had danced half-naked in a burlesque and was arrested on obscenity charges. The picture opens in a cheap motel as Pansy strums on a ukulele and then confesses to her friend Dot, played by Cecil Cunningham, that she only ever loved one man, the lawyer who had defended her on the public indecency charges. He kept her from a custodial sentence, and what sets the lawyer apart was that he didn't try and use the opportunity to badger her for sex, unlike every other man she'd met. Across the courtyard in the hotel, two men watch Pansy and her friend Dot. The director, Dorothy Arzner, gives us two different perspectives. The men watch the women and assume they're cheap party gals because they're half-dressed in the heat. From the women's point of view, Pansy laments that she's never succeeded in becoming hard-boiled like Dot. The men on the other side of the building are voyeurs. One is the hotel owner who keeps a room for his drinking buddies to sleep it off. 
The other man is the lawyer named Neil Dunlop, who sprung Pansy when she was arrested on stage. He's played by Clive Brook. Dunlap is in the middle of an epic bender, as the newspaper headlines flash on the screen to tell us that his wife left him to marry a man with more money. Deep in his cups, Dunlap listens to Pansy's confession about the only man she ever loved from across the hotel courtyard, courtesy of an electric fan, which blasts her voice into the bachelor den. Critics balk about the plausibility of the fan device. I'd like to place it in another context as a way to emphasize the new and novel addition of sound to pictures. Dorothy Arzner calls attention to the new sound technology in pictures by staging the mercurial nature of sound as a central plot device. With talkies in their early stages, Arzner reminds us of how what we hear might lack consistency or it might develop a fuller picture of any given situation. It's far more clever and playful than the gag which uses air vents as methods for eavesdropping, a device that still has legs in contemporary storytelling for the screen. Wasn't there an entire episode of The Good Wife recently that revolved around the secret testimony in a closed courtroom that Eli Gold heard through the air vent in the men's room? Dorothy Arzner uses the fan device to carry intimate conversations twice in the picture, and it works. In 1930, I'd say it was absolutely genius. Even today, the acoustic dynamics of how sound moves seems more convincing with an electric fan than with a massive hydraulic air vent system, which seems more likely to contain and trap sound than carry it. Dunlap tells his drinking crony that a man would be better off married to a girl like that one than the one he was married to. There's no pretense. With a girl like Pansy, you see what you get. She's earnest without any duplicity of society manners. It sounds like a compliment, but it isn't. The hotel owner rings the girls and invites them over for a party. Dot hot legs it to put on her glad rags. Near the end of the party, we see what's left of the sandwich buffet that everybody has eaten except Dunlap. Pansy warns him that he needs to eat or or he'll die. All of a sudden, they decide to marry. Pansy grasps the proposal like it's an airlift from a sinking ship. This is her chance to make good and have a future. The morning after doesn't look so rosy for the newlyweds. Dunlap is still stewed at 80 proof. He feels tricked into the nuptials. Pansy changes her appearance once they embark on married life. Dorothy Arzner believed that dress told the story in a woman's picture. During her tenure on the stage... Ruth Chatterton gave an interview where she emphasized the importance of costume. She said, clothes make the greatest difference to an actress who thinks. In woman's pictures, costume is more than decoration. It plays an integral role in characterization. Small details contain a wealth of information, not just the cut, color, and fabric. In other pre-codes, for example, we see characters' desperation from the state of their clothes. Joan Blondell wears laddered hose and clothes that are too big from her for her from being hungry at weight loss in the first scene of Blondie Johnson when she's appealing for help at the welfare office. And Anne Dvorak's jacket has a missing button and it's dirty and worn to a thin shine when she's addicted to cocaine in Three on a Match. Good clothes are an outward signal of dignity and self-respect for women. Even with the wardrobe Pansy has as a working-class girl from the chorus line, they're flattering and full of style. 
Or think of in, in another pre-code, Sadie McKee with only a nickel in her pocket, but wearing a stylish hat and topper to conceal her hardship. Just because women are poor doesn't mean they look like crap. This is part of the interior logic of a woman's picture. Her clothes are usually becoming even if they're not luxurious. Pansy's wedding costume was a fabulous v-neck sleeveless dress cut very narrow and midi length. In the lobby cards, it's pictured as shown in maroon. I would wear it for virtually any occasion. But in terms of the world that Pansy inhabits, the dress is supposed to be unrefined or not what proper ladies wear. She discards a bold striped coat, dark colors, and clinging fabrics. We don't see a makeover sequence, but her clothes are entirely new and different once she assumes her place in the house as Mrs. Dunlap. I'd still argue that the former wardrobe had more interest and flair. As a wife, she outfits herself in a bleached palette. Lots of white and pale shades dominate her wardrobe. The silhouette she takes on loosens with soft shoulders, created by a stiff white blouse with a wide shawl collar for one scene, worn with a diaphanous pleated skirt. Pansy dons outdoorsy-looking pullovers that look ready for tennis or golf or whatever else it is that wives get up to. Her clothes are demure and feminine and maybe even a bit childish rather than emphasize a grown woman's taste. For the dinner party she hosts as a new bride, she wears a pale gown and a heavy fabric that sports a little ruffle along a modestly dropped back line. She looks like she's outfitted for a sweet 16 or a debutante ball rather than as a society hostess. That gown came directly from her imagination of what a proper wife should wear, not from any fashion magazine. But the prim gown that's too young for Ruth Chatterton's character underscores how inexperienced she is and how unsure she is in her new role as wife. Dorothy Arzner wisely turned to costume to give the audience nonverbal aesthetic cues about a character's emotional state. As soon as Pansy greets the guests in this dress that looks homespun for a teenager, I knew the dinner party was going to be a disaster. That infantilized dress had doom written all over it. Had Pansy turned up in black satin and pearls, you might have believed she would get through the evening without incident. When the guests arrive, it's a sausage fest. Their wives send their regrets. You would think it was suddenly 1919 again with a massive flu epidemic raging. The men in evening attire are elegant liars. Clearly, their wives had staged a protest at the prospect of dining with a quarine at the head of a table. Pansy is socially dead, frozen out by the women of society. Chatterton's shoulders sag when she figures it out. Their marriage is on shaky terms, despite the fact that Pansy has forced Dunlop to start working and cut out the booze. He resumes his professional success thanks to her efforts. Pansy had hoped to gather a return on her good deeds as wife with this little party, but the only woman that shows up is her sister-in-law, with a look that says she's done her familial duty and good deed for the month. Pansy does what disappointed and nervous hostesses have done throughout time and bolsters herself with cocktails. When she's offered the first one, she looks to Dunlap, seeking her husband's approval. But really, who is he to refuse anyone a drink? 
Ruth Chatterton accepts the glass and she doesn't just swallow the liquor, she chews it. She bites on the spirits in a way that says it's been a while since she's had anything this strong. At the table, she sat next to one of her husband's most lucrative clients, a man named Gustav Saxon, played by Paul Lukash. He's a self-made man who did everything from selling papers to probably bootlegging and now has a degree of respectability. On the other side of her is another businessman named Walter Harvey, played by Charles Gerard. Pansy soon becomes woozy. She over-imbibes. She lost the flow of conversation in a boozy aside or a fit of gig- giggles. Dunlap and the folks at the other end of the table look aghast, which is pretty rich coming from a man who was pickled in gin for months. The film points out a clear double standard about drinking to excess, but viewers are led to agonize for the woman of the house. Gustav and Walter continue to fill her glass and persuade her to keep drinking even though she's already tight. And then things turn ugly. With a camera angle at the table side, the viewer sees Mr. Harvey's hand reach into Pansy's lap. Then the camera switches to the other end of the table so that we don't see the horror. We don't see him sexually assault the woman of the house in front of an audience. We hear Pansy's voice cry out in humiliation, fear, and anger. She calls for Dunlap to throw out Mr. Harvey. She's at the end of the table, flailing in outrage. A greasy hank of limp hair falls down over her face, so she looks undone, messy, and hysterical. The men just want her to quiet down. Pansy spins out of control because she never saw it coming. She was sure that married ladies didn't have to worry about men grabbing between their legs at a fancy dinner. And still, her husband fails to intercede on her behalf. Dunlap puts his arms around her at the end of the table to lead her to bed, more so to extricate her from the company rather than in any effort to protect or comfort her. Everyone just looks at her. Their silence deepens her humiliation. Pansy tries to change the mood and resume her status by announcing that they should tell the butler that she'll take her coffee in her room. She reels her limbs in and shifts from raw outrage to try and attempt a graceful exit at the bottom of the stairs. Pansy attempts a sloppy bow before she leaves, but tottering on her heels, she falls back and smashes a a vase on the banister. She's smashed, and so is the porcelain. Mr. Harvey does not apologize for attacking Pansy. He merely says to her husband, Sorry I got playful, Dunlop. Ruth Chatterton gives us 20 different things in this brief scene. Among the dozens of outstanding scenes where women have played messy drunk, Ruth Chatterton's vulnerable performance is operatic, riveting, and wholly sympathetic. She uses her ankles to portray a woman who's inebriated, but more so to show us one who has had the wind knocked out of her and can't find her footing. She clings to Dunlap's lapels like a drowning victim. Instead of hauling herself up the stairs, she should have made a beeline for the front door. Maybe Pansy should find company that doesn't treat her like a platter of meat on the table. She had been shocked to discover that she's alone among society wolves, without an ally. She has Dunlap's name and money, but absolutely nothing else. No regard, no empathy. Later, she visits everyone who had been at the dinner and extends a personal apology. 
She was a disgrace when she was drunk, so the film tells us. But for the men who are consistently steaming drunk, no blame falls. She extends her regrets even to the man who assaulted her at her own table. Wars have been started for less. It's worth pointing out that Pansy isn't a drinker in other scenes, and if it weren't for her, Dunlap would would have popped his own cork into an early grave. Later, she asked Dunlap, why didn't you sit next to me and help me? He informs her that husbands don't sit next to their wives at dinner, and then he wonders why a woman with a past like hers is suddenly so particular. Men such as Dunlap use their wives like a menu item to lure a guest to help their own career which is exactly what happens later, and I'll leave it at that. Dorothy Arzner devoted herself to making cautionary tales for women. Men are not idealized or romantic, even if she has to tack on a so-called happy ending to make the studio happy. In one scene, Pansy tells Dunlap, maybe there ain't such a difference between gentlemen and insects. In Dorothy Arzner's pictures, that's a polite way of putting it. Or as one critic said, the men make a poor showing. In Chicago, the censors declared that anybody's woman could be screened for adults only. They wouldn't want to ruin the Cinderella fantasy of marriage for young girls. Arzner collaborated with screenwriter Zoe Akins for this production. In an interview, Arzner said that she depended on the writer to make a successful picture and had the writer on set with her whenever possible. Based on a story called The Better Wife, Aikens adapted Anybody's Woman for the screen and wrote the dialogue. Doris Anderson also shares a screen credit for the screenplay. Arzner and Aikens also teamed with Chatterton for Sarah and Son from 1930, which was an enormous hit. The writer and director also made The Fabulous Working Girls, which was produced in 1931. Working Girls unfortunately bombed at the box office, but it's one of Arzner's most important films. Aikens also wrote Christopher Strong, which Arzner directed. With a trinity of sass-mouthed dames like Aikens, Arzner, and Chatterton, we have a woman's picture that digs to the very marrow of woman's lived experience. Not one bit of this ages. It's as relevant today as it was in 1930. You can find it through a Google search for Anybody's Woman 1930 OK.RU. I'll close this episode with a brief excerpt from Ruth Chatterton's novel, The Pride of the Peacock, which was published in 1954. The novel splits the narration between a 15-year-old girl, her father, and her mother who abandoned them to run off to Europe with an Italian opera singer. Once her mother's money runs out, the Italian jilts her. The mother returns three years later to her maternal grandmother and mother's home for a few weeks until her strange husband asks her to return. The only thing that detracts from this novel is the alarming number of exclamation marks for sentences that are not the least bit exclamatory. She might have made better use of italics, but even those are rarely needed or necessary. In a way, the plot seems like what would happen if Fran Dodsworth had left with a gigolo before her children were grown. Overall, it's cinematic and vivid in establishing the characters and setting. Keep your eye out for a copy. In this passage, Chatterton even references one of her own films, Madame X, which is something only a true queen would do. In the passage, the wayward mother, named Alexandria and nicknamed Zan, is held to account by her grandmother, Lavinia. 
Why, Zan, my grandmother said, is there something to gossip about? You don't deserve an answer, I muttered sullenly. All your sister said was that your home was very gay and that you had lots of beaux, which you'll admit is not unusual, she said serenely. What's wrong with that? I didn't answer. As always, she was meaning more than she said. Des was afraid Jock's working too hard. Ah, she was striking deeply now. What else had Des told her? That Jock was in love with another woman? I prayed to God not. If it were true, Lavinia must never know. She loved Jock and believed in him. The disillusion about me had been enough for her to take. At that second, I made up my mind that even if I hated it, I'd, I'd lie some more. Perhaps I'd improve with practice. Jocko does work hard, I said, with what I thought was a confident smile. But the poor dear has a luxury-loving wife to support, to say nothing of a debutante daughter. I was grateful when I saw that she wasn't going to pursue the subject of Jock, but I relaxed too soon. How is that very attractive Mr. Harding, she said quietly. Attractive. What the devil was she reaching for? Mr. Harding is a married man, isn't he? My God, Lavinia, it isn't 1870. I'm well aware of that, Zan. Stop jumping at conclusions. What the hell else could I jump at? His being married isn't the thing which bothers me. I know well that the morals of the 20th century are only one of the modern changes which presages the end of the world. Remember the Romans. A Daniel come to judgment, what? I said mockingly. Lavinia shook her head and her cat's smile challenged me. I'm no Portia either, she said. You demand more than a pound of flesh. Why, thank you, darling. I wondered if I looked as hurt as I felt. Now, if you'll allow me to return to my original question, I'll admit that it was just a springboard to another. I'm listening. May I ask if Mr. Harding's wife is as complacent about his obvious infatuation for you as Jock appears to be? I jumped to my feet and I looked down at her. God, Des must have told her plenty. Are you criticizing me, Lavinia? No, dear child, merely warning you, she said calmly. The last few times I've been with you, I thought I detected a look of wanderlust in your eye. For the moment, my darling, you are quite mistaken. If you were right about that look, I should very probably wander. I was throwing her wicked challenge right back in her teeth. With Mr. Harding, she inquired. I shrugged as nonchalantly as I could. Dick's quite a rich man, Lavinia, but I assure you he isn't rich enough to keep two women. I said, I come high, you know. You didn't come so high the last time, my girl. Her blue eyes had a steely expression. Then, too, she continued, you haven't as much money to gamble with as you once had, have you? I felt trapped. Why was she doing this to me? I wanted to cry, but I would rather have died than let her see me do it. What have I done to you, Lavinia, that you should talk to me like this? I recognized the self-pity which had crept into my voice and and my heart, and I hated it. Zan, she said, oh so gently, I've told you before that you are my real child, and I worry about you more than you think. You've always been loving to me, but I know that inside you are hard and canny. I know, too, that you are headstrong and reckless, and you don't always count the cost. I want to count it for you, my dear child. You know, just in case I... Shut up. That cold hand had gripped my throat again and had wrung a cry from me. You see, she went on, just as if I hadn't broken in on her. You and I are so rarely alone together like this, and I've wanted to say it for a long time. So will you be patient and indulge an old woman who loves you? 
I couldn't for the life of me see what she was driving at, but I waved her on. God help me. Zan, if you should have an impulse to run off again, I think you will come to terms with your conscience more easily than you did the first time. That's the way of consciences, you know. Ah, yes, I forgot. You never came to terms with yours, did you? I was ashamed of myself for saying it, but she was needling me badly. Have you been happier for it? At any rate, my dear, I can hold my head up, and I don't have to beg for alms. There was sadness in her voice, but no rancor. And so, having sinned my way, I am now to sin your way, is that it? You were given another chance, she said, as I once reminded you, it would be a miracle if you were given a third. I lighted a cigarette nervously, flipped the dead match in the direction of the waste basket, and missed. If it will set your mind at rest, old girl, I said cockily, I haven't as yet booked passage for Europe, haven't even inquired about plane schedules. I hope you won't change your mind, she said evenly, but you're a restive creature. Let's look for a moment on the seamy side. I was chafing at the bit and she knew it, but it didn't stop her. Your last adventure endured as long as your money held out, didn't it? And now you have no money whatsoever with which to buy time. The next man may become more tired of you more quickly. Lavinia Peacock, I protested. Do you really think that all men are like Giolini? Do you believe there's no man who wouldn't tire of me? I think there's no man of whom you wouldn't tire. What difference does it make who tires first? The end would be the same. You think I have no heart? Ah, yes, Anne, you have a heart. No one could tell me otherwise, but no man has ever found it. You see, you've never been in love. Lavinia, don't contradict me, Zan. I know you. I wouldn't worry so much if I thought you would ever find love, but it's getting a little late for you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Don't look now, but is my waddle showing? She completely ignored me. Knowing well your ego and your easy boredom, I think these uncontrollable impulses of yours are likely to become habitual, and each time they will be of shorter duration. You can't expect Jock to take you back then or pay for your misadventures, can you? Who will, Zan? I couldn't think of an answer. That sort of life is very costly, my dear. When your money has gone, providing you have money, what then? Somehow I don't see you as a lovely faded faded derelict living from man to man. The role of Madame X doesn't suit you, Zan. Every nerve in my body was quivering. All she was saying was true, I suppose, but I hadn't come for that kind of truth. My God, I cried, I'm surrounded by ravens. Ravens? She seemed as puzzled as I was exasperated. Mr. Poe to you, you devil. Oh, I quite agree with you that the role of Madame X doesn't suit me, but no more does the role of Reverend Davidson become you. Lavinia chuckled. I hadn't even pierced her armor. You may think I'm a devil child, but have a look at the one that's roosting on your shoulder, will you? I've seen him there whispering in your ear quite often lately. What I'm asking you, Zan, is not to listen, and if he becomes too insistent, knock him off. For the first time, her little face was stern, and for the first time, she was frightening me a little. Because if you don't, somebody else will have to. I felt Papa's temper rising in me. Mama always said he had a murderous one. Don't you think you've said enough, I said, trying to hold back my tears? I'm surprised at you. You, the queen of understatement. It isn't like you to tear a statement to ribbons. The room was deadly still for a few moments while we stared at each other. 
Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Joan Fontaine in Born to be Bad from 1950, directed by Nicholas Ray.